Please pray with me. Father, we pray now as we have been singing about your grace and your glory, as we have been worshiping you in your holiness, as we have been expressing gratitude for the person and work of Jesus. We pray now that you would continue to extend that grace to us as we look at your word, that you would sharpen our thinking, that by the power of your spirit you would encourage us to walk faithfully in following you, that where we rebel against you or even are currently rebelling against you, that you would convict us of our sin and, Lord, that you would give us the ability and the courage to change. We pray this for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how you feel about your family name. Sometimes you hear it said that people say, so-and-so won the lottery by being born into that family. I wonder how you feel about your family name. I reckon there are a lot of us that are generally ambivalent toward our family name. There are no specific historical significance to our name, no people of fame or notoriety that have come out of our family line, at least not that we know about. I mean, of course, we find the right type of gratitude in those who have gone before us and what they've done and the example that they set and what they've provided. But overall, when we think about our family name, many of us just kind of think of normal people doing normal things with normal expectations. Others try as hard as they can to run away from their family heritage. Maybe you're here and you're in that situation. Perhaps you've had abusive parents or poor memories of your upbringing. Maybe you look at the habits and the patterns and the trends of your family life growing up and you say, now that I'm an adult, I want to have the exact opposite type of life than the life that I was raised in. Or perhaps along those same lines that there's tremendous negative connotation to your family name because of a notorious person in your family. You can think of the person in the small town that everybody knows their dad is the town drunk. Or the people who have that mother who in the region is known as the crooked businesswoman. Or maybe even worse, maybe you're the grandchild of a notorious criminal. I mean, what would it be like to have the last name Hitler or Himmler or Manson or Madoff? You are not proud of that family name. But then there are some. There are some people who have a family name that provides them with tremendous opportunity. Good people, good business, certain wealth that comes with, of course, tremendous expectation. Some people are born into these types of families, are expected to act a certain way because of their name. And they're expected to have certain types of experiences because of that name. Now, these experiences aren't necessarily bad. They're just a part of that way of life. And they also have tremendous hope because they look forward to the benefits of being associated with this family and what it means for their future, what it means for their reputation, and, quite frankly, what it means for their inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, 
The Apostle Paul uses this type of language to describe the life of a Christian. A Christian is a person who has a specific family name. And with that family name, because they're part of that family, there's a specific way in which they live. And there are specific implications for the inheritance that they have that is waiting for them. And the Holy Spirit of God is right down in the middle of this dynamic of the family life of a Christian, of the personal life of a Christian, and a guarantor for the inheritance that is to come. And so I want to ask you, if you haven't yet done so, turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. Today we're going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans 8, 12 through 17. You can find it on page 944 of the Pew Bible. This is what Paul says. To the Christians in Rome, he writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Romans chapter 8 is this incredible chapter of the Bible that gives great encouragement to the Christian and also gives some specific warning attached to that encouragement. And there are some underlying questions that people are asking that the Apostle Paul is answering here. And they, they look something like this. Question number one, what does it mean to live in the Spirit? Another way to ask that same question is how do you know if you are a genuine Christian? Another way to ask that question is what is the evidence of people being children of God? And here he gives us specific, five actually specific points of evidence that you are living in the spirit and benefits that come attached with that type of life, being part of this type of family. And so let's look at those five pieces of evidence that you're living in the Spirit together. Now, throughout Romans 5 through 8, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you have been hearing about this contrast of a life in the flesh and a life in the Spirit. And this ongoing dynamic through Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And, and Paul is trying to get to the heart of the matter of what it means to be born into a sin nature. And all of the desires and propensities that we have because of that sin nature. The life of the flesh. Versus the new life that we have in Jesus that is marked by a presence of the Spirit of God. And so in Romans 6 we saw that we are dead 
to sin if we put our faith in Jesus. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Instead, Jesus forgives us and he places us in his realm, which is the realm of grace and mercy, of life and of peace. But in Romans 7, we saw that there's still, even though we're not slaves to sin any longer, there's still this dynamic in which we battle with sin. Sin is so strong. And yet, the power of God is stronger. And nevertheless, the life of the Christian is this ongoing inner battle. But the good news comes in Romans 8, that is, through Christ, God gives you the Holy Spirit of God. God gives you more of himself, indwelling you, which allows you to conquer this sin. It allows you to continue to grow in holiness to God. And so the life of the Christian is marked by one that's moving away from sin more and more, and moving more and more to righteousness because of the power of God that is indwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. And so how do you know? If you have the Spirit, if you're living in the Spirit, well, here are the five points of evidence. The first is found in Romans 8, verse 12. And that is, you are not a debtor to the flesh, living according to it. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, living according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He starts these five, and it's interesting that he starts with a negative example. He's about to tell you what Christians look like, but first he says, this is what Christians don't look like. They are not a debtor to the flesh. And that's a kind of an interesting way to express it, isn't it? Not a debtor. Not one who is obligated to do something. A debtor of the flesh is one who feels obligated to indulge their sinful desires, and as a result, they live according to those desires. Their, their life is not marked by the pursuit of godly types of things. Their life is actually marked by an enslavement, an ongoing sense that they live in sin. Now, more than ever in our society, we can understand what a debtor is, can't we? Student loans car loans, mortgages, credit card debt. And if you've ever had burdensome financial debt, then it gives you a little bit of a taste of what Paul is talking about here. The weight of obligation that comes and the responsibility or the requirement even to see that through. And this is how sin traps us. And if we follow it, he says, we will die. We will die in our sin which leads to ultimate spiritual death and judgment. The second mark of one who is living in the Spirit is found in the very next verse, and it's a contrast to verse 12. He said, For if you live according to the flesh, verse 13, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The second mark of somebody who's living in the Spirit is that they're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, by way of reminder, when Paul talks about the flesh or the deeds of the body, what is he talking about? He's talking about our sinful desires, our sinful nature, things that we want to do but are in direct opposition to what God has called us to do or how we are to live. And he uses some pretty intense language. 
What is the most severe thing that you can do to an enemy of yours? What is the ultimate consequence of war with an enemy? You don't just say bad things about your enemy. You don't just slap your enemy or attempt to bruise them. No, the ultimate consequence of war is death. (laughs) You put your enemy to death. Paul says that the desire to sin is so strong in us that it takes a response that is even stronger to overcome it. And so when the sin's desires bubble up within you, Christian, the Christian musters up the will to fight, but not just the will to sort of weakly fight or to fight in weakness, but the will to actually put to death the most severe expression the enemy from within, the sin that tempts us. Now, about a year and a half ago, there was a news headline that made national news, and it was something like this. Firefighter hospitalized after beheaded snake bites him. Now, you see about these types of stories that pop up every couple of years, and this was in November of 2016, Spring Hill, Tennessee, Kyle Watson was evacuated by helicopter from a remote trail in the Creeks Bend Natural Wildlife Area in Tennessee because he had come across a juvenile timber rattlesnake while he was hiking with his wife and his three children. And there were a number of people on the trail during that day, and Watson was concerned that the hikers would be in danger with the rattlesnake so close to the trail. And so he said, I decided to cut the head off the snake with my kayak paddle. The snake was only a couple of feet long. And after Watson decapitated the snake, he wanted to show his children the head. Yeah, of course he did. I mean, most guys in the room would want to show their kids the head. That's pretty cool. Except he wasn't able to pick up the head with the kayak paddle, so he reached down with his hand to pick it up. And what he describes next It's pretty terrifying. He says, as I reached down, the head turned and it struck me on the finger and it latched on and I slung it off. The snake packed a poisonous punch. The venom began to course through his body almost immediately and within 10 seconds, burning sensations were shooting through his arms. Within 60 seconds, he was unconscious. He fell to the ground. He hit his head on a rock and began to bleed. I was knocked out, Watson said, in a remote area, bleeding from the head and bitten by a snake. His wife summons medical help. He was flown to Vanderbilt Medical Center where he was quickly put on an IV drip of anti-venom serum. And all of this from the head of a dead snake. Now there are many important passages in the Bible that refer to Satan as a serpent or as a snake. The serpent, who from the very beginning lies and steals and who tempts you and attempts to destroy you. And we see throughout the Bible and throughout history that the path of God, the divine plan of God, is that his son Jesus would defeat the serpent on the cross. 
And all the venomous sins that he tempts us with would be defeated as well. However, Christian, you need to know that even defeated snakes can bite. And so Paul warns the Christian, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you will live. And the paradox is clear. Those who live according to the flesh actually die. Those who put to death the things of the flesh actually live. Now, don't confuse this with works-based salvation, because verse 13 clearly says that you're not able to do this of your own. This is not being good enough to inherit your salvation. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This happens by the Spirit, and we know, as we've seen in Romans 5-8, through that the Spirit only comes to those who are children of God. And they're children of God because they put their faith in Jesus. And so God, by his spirit, empowers you to put to death these sins that you're battling with. One who has the spirit can do it. The one who does not have the spirit cannot. And so this is what we might say. That living in the spirit is validation of our conversion. Living in the Spirit validates our conversion. And it guarantees our future. And I want to be really clear on this. Do you understand? Because this is where it comes all the way down to the ground for us. There are a lot of people out there who say that they're a child of God or who think that they're a child of God. And in some sort of general sense, I guess that's true because God created all humankind and humankind is made in his image. And so certainly every person is an image bearer of God. But more specifically, the Bible talks about the children of God being marked by people who put their faith in Jesus and thus are marked by a life in the spirit. That is to say that if you're not marked by a life of the spirit, you need to question if your faith in Jesus is actual, actually genuine. And so it's straightforward to answer the person who says, I'm a child of God, but who's not put their faith in Jesus. They want to receive the eternal benefits of the children of God, but clearly without faith in Christ, they will not receive them. They will not receive forgiveness and they will not receive eternal blessing. However, what about the person who claims Christ as his Savior? but continues to make the choices to live in a pattern of sin or a lifestyle of sin or unrepentant sin. This person who's contradicting the life of the very Savior that he claims, is that person a Christian? How do you know? We need to be clear, there's a difference between Struggling with sin, which we all do, and unrepentant serial sin, or a lifestyle that reflects sin. And the difference, Paul says, is a difference between life and death. And so if you're here today and you say, I'm all good, Pastor Nick, 
I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I went to Sunday school. But your life reflects unrepentant, serial sin. Then you need to know that this calls your salvation into question. Because there will be a lot of people who acknowledge Jesus with their mind, but their saving faith is not genuine. And serial unrepentant sin, the deeds of the flesh, Paul says, lead to death. But killing sin is actually a mark of the spirit and that leads to life. Living in the spirit validates our conversion. And it guarantees our future. And so what is the third piece of evidence? The third piece of evidence we see in verse 14. Look at it with me. He sort of summarizes the ideas of 12 and 13 together. And he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now a couple points of clarification. He's going to use the word sons of God throughout the rest of this passage. And this is not just particularly referring to God only saves men or that God doesn't value women or any of those types of things. But you need to know that the idea of sons in the ancient world are the ones who receive the inheritance. And we're going to see the benefit of that in just a minute. So this applies to men and women alike. If you live by the Spirit, you have the position or the relationship of a son of God. And so the question becomes, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? This is a mark of your conversion, an evidence of the Spirit in your life, that you're led by Him. And there's a lot of different meanings out there of what people think it means to be led by the Spirit. Sometimes people use this term in different ways. If I were to pull the room, I would probably get all kinds of different descriptions of what a Spirit-led life looks like. Some people talk about Spirit-led worship. They talk about, maybe you even might think that today, the, the kind of emotional response to a time of singing praises to God. I can think of a conversation I had some time ago with a woman who was talking about the church that they were attending. And this person was describing the music of their church and she was, she was so happy with what was happening in their church. And she said, it's just wonderful. The music is just spirit-led. It's not like those churches, you know, pastor, those churches that sing hymns. And so surprised by the statement, I said, wow, that sounds like a great church. But did you know that the church of Jesus Christ has been singing hymns for hundreds of years? And the contemporary Christian music scene's only been, what, 40 or 50 years old, generously? So if the Spirit just came on the scene to lead in worship in the last 50 years, I wonder what he was doing for the thousand years before that while Christians were trying to gather and sing in worship. Some people think that's Spirit-led. Other people, most people I reckon would say to be led by the Spirit is a reference to a situation in which they felt prompted by the Spirit of God to do something specific. The Spirit led me to do this. The Spirit led me to say this. And 
I certainly believe that the Holy Spirit does those things. The Spirit prompts us. The Spirit convicts us of sin and leads us back to Christ. The Spirit gives us ammunition against the enemy. It gives us tools that we need to engage in life. The Spirit even informs us or prompts us to do certain things in certain times. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. When Paul says those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God in Romans chapter 8, he is talking about a life that is dominated by the Spirit. It's not just a random occurrence to be led by the Spirit here or there. It's not just the still, small voice that you might hear in your mind. It's not just that particular worship song. The life or being led by the Spirit is the totality of your life coming in line with the Spirit's purposes to grow you toward maturity in Jesus Christ. And so even though, as Romans 7 indicated, that we still struggle with sin, and the first part of eight of Romans 8 tells us that we're empowered by the Spirit to do what's right in God's eyes. And now we see that being led by the Spirit means that the totality of our life, as we fight against sin, more and more, is led by the Spirit as we grow in holiness. To be led by the Spirit is your sanctification. It is the Spirit of God empowering you to fight sin, to put it to death, to grow in holiness more and more. There's a clear progression that happens in the life of the Christian. And so living in the Spirit validates our conversion because these things don't happen unless you're a Christian. And it also guarantees our future. There's two more pieces of evidence. I'll move quickly through them from this passage. Verse 15 What's an evidence that you're living in the Spirit? Well, that you exercise dependence on God as our Father. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption. An adopted son who relies on his father. And this term, Abba, Father, is an expression of intimacy of a son who understands something very important in this life. I can't do it by myself. I need you to help me. I wonder when is the last time you said that to God. I can't do it by myself. I need you to help me. This is the same expression that Jesus used in the garden leading up to his crucifixion, praying to his father, sweating blood, experiencing the weight of sinful humanity, experiencing the emotion of betrayal, experiencing that dynamic of willingness to be obedient, but at the very same time sensing his humanity in the moment Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Help me. I can't do it by myself. I need you to help me. And when you approach your life like that, when you say, God, I need you every hour, every hour I need you, then clearly you're living in the Spirit fifth piece of evidence is found in verse 17. He says, 
if we are children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, here's the evidence, that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. From suffering to glory. This is a theme of the New Testament that Jesus himself embodies, that the apostles embody, that all of those who would follow Christ would embody. That in this life you will receive suffering because of the name of Christ. Of some kind you will receive difficulty, you will receive scorn, you might receive shame, there might be financial implications, there will certainly be reputation implications for you. But if you are willing to suffer with him to take up your cross and follow him, you will be glorified with him. Welcome to the Christian life. (laughs) This is a life in the spirit. So you see these five points of evidence. And I hope for you, depending upon where you are today, they are either encouraging, incredibly encouraging, or severely challenging. Encouraging because God, by the power of the Spirit, is doing these things in you. He's changing you. He's growing you. He's giving you the ability to do things that you yourself cannot do. You see the evidence and you say, praise to you. I need you every hour. And you're there every hour. Or, incredibly convicting. Because if your life reflects serial, unrepentant sin, but you claim Christ mentally, your salvation is called into question of whether or not that confession is actually genuine. I want to encourage you with the benefits of having the Spirit. That's what Paul does in verses 16 through 17. You know, we, we use this illustration of our family name the beginning. The illustration of having a family that has certain types of expectations attached to it and a certain type of hope and inheritance that waits. And so here we see that hope and inheritance and the benefit in verse 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So you see the different descriptions, right? Verse 15, you get a spirit of adoption. Verse 16, you become children of God. And if you're children of God, that means you're heirs of God. And if you're heirs of God, that means you're co-heirs with Christ. How do you begin to describe the idea of being a son of God and a co-heir with Jesus? God shouldn't even call us children, and yet he chooses to adopt us into his family. And because he adopts us, Through the righteous standing of his son that we saw in Romans 6, Jesus unites himself to you. He takes your sin as his own. He gives you his righteousness as his own. Because you receive his righteousness, then you receive his righteous standing and you receive, in many ways, his inheritance. You become a co-heir with him. The benefits of being a true son. Now, the idea of being a child of God has a relational component to it, doesn't it? But the notion of being an heir implies a legal right to inheritance. If you were walking down an important street in a big city, a street where reputation and name and your position mattered in the community, and you should see a dirty little boy who is begging on the side of the road, your heart 
would be filled with pity for that boy as he held out his jar and asked for money. But if that same little boy then began to follow you around through the streets, saying, Mother, Mother, I'm here. Father, come back. Here I am, Father. Referring to you, your pity would quickly move to annoyance and eventually to righteous indignation. Because what right would that child have to attract attention to you in the midst of this large crowd and distract them from his filth and bring the attention to you? The desire on the part of the child cannot create a parental relationship. But if you go to the child and you lead him from the street into your home and you give him new cleanliness and new clothing and you give him a meal and you adopt him into your family, then he has the right to call you father. And the law will recognize that very right. But the right and the authority must be given to you, to the parent. In the divine relationship, God has made full provision for you to be one of his children. He's made full provision for sonship. If we're to become the sons of God, the first step, however, is to realize that we are not sons of God. And cannot be, except through the channel which he himself has opened up to us for sonship through Jesus Christ. And the mark of that sonship is a deposit of the Spirit dwelling in you, giving you power for life, changing you from a sinner to a saint, and guaranteeing you the full rights of an heir for all of eternity. I wonder what kind of inheritance you have in this life. Maybe some of you have already received it. Maybe for some of you, the idea of inheritance is yet to come. Maybe you're like me. You come from a fairly modest background. Your family's been affected by divorce. And in the end, you will only receive a small inheritance, if anything at all. Perhaps you come from a wealthy background. A background with a type of inheritance that you receive that really changes your life. It allows you to do things that you would not otherwise be able to do. It gives you opportunity that you otherwise would not have had. And when you think about that inheritance, you're grateful. You're even excited. There's great hope attached to it. But either way, the types of inheritance that we receive on this earth are fleeting. But here God is talking about a divine inheritance that lasts forever. Things, standing, status that money cannot buy and will not go away forever. The type of inheritance that's fit for a king. A king who has a kingdom who never ends. And the sons and daughters of that kingdom. This is the type of love that God the Father gives to those who puts their faith in his son. 
And through faith in his son, you become a son. Eternal position in the family of God. Eternal inheritance with his son. The everlasting King Jesus. Living in the spirit, spirit validates our conversion. But it guarantees our future. As heirs with Christ. There are so many more ways we could express this wonderful reality of God's love and the gifts that God gives to us through faith in Jesus. I hope, I hope, I hope that you are experiencing those things for yourself. That you're not watching from a distance when you could be in the center of the house as a child or as an heir. That you're not sort of looking in on the family of God from the periphery when you could be experiencing the benefits of the family and a life in the spirit and the eternal position and relationship that awaits for you. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that expresses our joy and confidence in these things written by Charles Wesley. And I hope that it's the expression of your heart and that you sing it with boldness and confidence and joy because of the position and the relationship that God has placed you in. But if you have not, then here's the call. I'm going to ask you to decide today to make Christ your Lord. Don't wait any longer to be on the outside looking in. Trust him to forgive you of your sins. Become a child, live in the spirit and become an heir. You have the opportunity to do that today. If you're in that spot, come forward today after the service. We'd love to pray with you. Our pastors and elders will be up here. If you are here today and you've been living in serial unrepentant sin, but you're calling Christ your savior at the same time, then don't continue in the pattern. (laughs) Live in the spirit. And we'd love to pray with you today along those lines as well. Charles Wesley writes in the old hymn, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ my own. Let's stand and sing together.